welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is lesson number 30, Alma 39 through 42, The Great Plan of Happiness. This is part two. Rod's guest this week is Lynette Hadley-Reed. She has published over 20 articles in the Ensign Meridian Magazine, Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, and Encyclopedia of Mormonism. She has published four books, one by Desert Book, and has lectured at Education Week, CES symposiums, and many conferences. Her Gospel Doctrine blog, which includes Book of Mormon geography, is posted on ldsgospeldoctrine.net. Graduating from BYU with a BA, she did postgraduate studies in religion at the University of Florida. Her major research has been on how Jewish holy days prophesied of Christ's major works, including the beginning of the days of awe at Hill Kamora. They also hold significant prophecy for the future. Welcome everybody. We're glad to have you back. This is Lynette Reed. As I've thought about this over the course of time, I thought, you know, uh, I had a personal experience actually one time I wanted to share with you guys, and that is that my brother was coming back from his mission from Toronto, Canada, which, which by the way, President Monson happened to be his mission president at the time. But, <laughs> so, but he, um, he came back from his mission, and, uh, and we had a, a state president who was just one of the most spiritual men I've ever, I had ever met in my life at that point in time. Now, I hadn't committed any grievous sins or anything like that, but I was having a rebellious attitude against my parents and so forth, and I kind of came to his, um, they, they were basically um, releasing him from his mission. And I kind of I came begrudgingly because oh, it's another church thing I gotta you know whatever do and I'd rather be hanging out with my friends or whatever. Anyway, so I so I went into this with that the right attitude, and I just remember um, as the state president put his uh, hands on my brother's head and basically and released him from his mission and and and, and talked to him about how important his mission was and so forth. That um, I felt totally uncomfortable. I did not feel like I should be there, that I was that I was maybe even holding back the spirit that was that was there in that room, and I realized that you know what if 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 people are not ready to be in the presence of God, they're not going to feel comfortable in the celestial kingdom. They're just not, and so I, I personally think that to a large extent, once we are shown our life and the judgment happens and we know. There's no question about it. I think to some extent we're going to be involved with that decision of where we want to go, where, where, we, where we get to go, because people who have, and, and this is what he says right here in verse 12, and uh, this is, this is uh, chapter 41, verse 12, and now behold is the meaning of the word re restoration to take a thing of natural state and place it in an unnatural state or to place it in a state opposite to its nature. Oh, my son, that is not the case. But the meaning of the word restoration is to bring back, again, evil for evil, carnal for carnal, devilish for devilish, good for that which is good, righteous for that which is righteous, just for that which is just, merciful for that which is merciful. And then in verse 15 he says, For that which ye do, uh, for that which ye do send out shall return unto you again and be restored. So, in other words, someone who has a, a, a disposition to do wickedly, to do evil, they're not going to be suddenly, magically transformed into a person who wants to do good. Right. That's not restoration. Right, and in sharing the, trying to share the gospel with other people, I did run into some interesting comments. You know, when you speak about the celestial kingdom, there are those that 
that has no appeal to the thought of sacrificing, you know, for children, <laughs> for offspring is not something they want to do anymore. Uh, the thought of, you know, even some of the religious practices we have, which are beautiful to us, like going to the temple, uh, going to conference, to them it's boring. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so they won't have a desire, likely, unless something changes their hearts. Yeah. <laughs> and they begin to understand to a greater degree. So I, I almost kind of look at like the celestial kingdom, those who want to do evil. The terrestrial kingdom is those who don't really care one way or the other too much. They're kind of the, the not, not really committed one way or the other. They don't want to do evil, but they don't want to have to step up and do good. And then there's those in the celestial kingdom who basically, the people who want to do good. And, uh, and I kind of see that as maybe, you know, the, uh, the general attitude of people in those three divisions. You know, and it all boils down to the, to really a full understanding of the atonement and of what the Savior has done for us. You know, when we really realize what God the Father and His Son have done for us, then we have this great desire to give back to them, to glorify them. And it isn't a matter of just wanting to do good, we should do that too, but we also should want to glorify our Father. That is, a, that is what the Son did. He came to glorify His Father. And that should also be our desire. And if that is our desire, then we will want to inherit the celestial kingdom. We will want to bring our children and our loved ones there so that they too might glorify Him yeah. in gratitude for what He has done for us. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, I've heard people say before, you know, well, but, you know, but, but some people just want to be good because they want to get that mansion in heaven, you know, or something like that. And I think to myself, you know, actually, you should want to do good because it's in your best interest. Not just your best interest, but in the best interest of all of your posterity, which will be like the stars without number. If you make it to the celestial kingdom and you want to do good, those are the only ones who get to procreate, to continue to procreate. And everybody else basically is uh, not going to procreate, as we understand that. So they will be basically um, serving others and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure what they're going to be doing in the Telestial Kingdom, but I, I hope to not know or find out, <laughs> except for to go around and maybe try to help some of these folks. But the, uh, but the bottom line is, is that that's my, my um, understanding is, is that these are things that if, if you are not moving in the direction of God in this life, if your whole goal is to do evil and wickedly, then that will be basically your ongoing goal, even after you realize that there is a life after, even after you realize I have my, my, my body now, but there's things that I used to really enjoy, that the single most pleasurable time of my of my existence was with my wife and that's over. That will never happen again. One of the things we do know is that, you know, we can change our tastes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of foods which were once introduced to me I didn't like, but I later learned to enjoy. And uh, so... Well, I, I've kind of learned to enjoy all of them, really. <laughs> I feel these things now that they don't want more family, etc. Yeah. Uh, they may, that may, they may change, they can change their understanding and their uh, desires for higher things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah and, there, and there are a lot of people who desire to have children but don't have the opportunity. Right. 
You know, so this is, I think, again, goes back to that, that what's in your heart, even more so than your, uh, than your actions. But, but, but there is the saying that actions speak louder than words. So sometimes you can tell a lot more about a person by their actions than you can by what they say. But what's in their heart is ultimately the best way to know right. a person. <laughs> yes, yeah. I agree. All right. Well, anyway, so uh, let's get to, to uh, chapter 42. And this is where we want to really kind of spend the, the most uh, amount of time here. Uh, this is uh, about, uh, so starts off with Adam and Eve and uh, how they become as God. Um, and then, um, then we talk about the great plan of salvation. So I'm going to go ahead and turn some time over to you, uh, Lynette, if you wouldn't, uh, wouldn't mind just talking about some things. You, um, we, we've talked before, and, and you've actually spoken before at our conferences, which, by the way, we want to we make, make sure everybody knows um, this is a, like a, a, a podcast. It's just like an hour long or something. But uh, Lynette has actually spoken you know, several times at our, at our conferences, and, we, and she keeps threatening to not come again. You know, she's going to, oh, well, I'm done. I think I'm done. And, and we keep trying to talk her into doing more. But, but, uh, but she's, uh, she's a, a trooper. She, she uh, keeps coming out because she, this lady never stops learning. <laughs> I hope that I will continue. <laughs> there's, so still, there's still so much to learn. Yeah, you are, you are such a great example of uh, what it is to be a, uh, a seeker a after truth, Zion, I hope. Really. Yeah. <laughs> But after the most important truth, seeker after truth, but the most important truth. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that's what I am. And we're grateful for to have that 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 knowledge that that, that you're willing to share. So, share with us a little bit about, um, you know, it talks about uh, the, the plan of salvation and uh, and about uh, the atonement. Okay. Well, I was hoping you would give me time on time for that because you know the plan of salvation is beautiful and wonderful, but its key is the atonement of Jesus Christ and. The word atonement actually has two meanings. The one is to become one again. And so that's what Christ does, is he brings us back to become one again. Like with the at one meant? Yeah, at the at-one-ment, to become God again with the Father. And, and I love the fact that the Last Supper, remember he kept praying <laughs> with his disciples that you will be one with me and my Father as we are one. And he prays that over and over again, always oneness, oneness, oneness. And then he went out into Gethsemane to bring about the at-one-ment. The second part of, the second meaning for the atonement is to cover. And to me that has so much profound meaning. And I want to share just some of those meanings. I think there are at least, there are over 12 references in the scriptures and other sources which teach how important the covering is, that Christ covers us. It begins in Genesis. Everything begins in Genesis with Adam <laughs> and Eve. <laughs> and uh, remember, they, they transgressed. Their sin wasn't as great as we think it was, but they did transgress God's laws. And so because of that, uh, they suddenly realized their nakedness, you know, which means they're, um, they'd done something and they did not dare appear in the, in the presence of God again because they were ashamed. So, the isn't, Lord... Isn't that like it is when we sin? <laughs> yes, you know, that's like, precisely... We not want to pray because we're sinning or we don't, we don't want to go to church because we're sinning or we don't want to partake in the sacrament because we're sinning and... That's precisly... And that ourselves right out of the church. Precisely. Meaning, and so, the Father, in a beautiful foreshadowing, says to the Jehovah, make coats of skin for them to cover their nakedness. Well, it doesn't really go into detail, but when you rethink about it, you know, 
because the skin would have to come from an animal. So the, ac the animal was likely sacrificed. It was probably... Nothing in, nothing what? In, there was no death prior to... Yeah, it wasn't coats of wool. <laughs> <laughs> coats of skins. It's coats of skin. So, um, Something had to die. And the animal had to be sacrificed and the skin taken from it and then placed upon Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. Well, the Lord builds on this concept, uh, for example, in the story, throughout the scriptures, but for example, the story of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz, for those who read the scriptures with a, a desire to understand its symbolism, how things were types and witnesses of Christ, realize that Boaz was a type of Jesus Christ. He was the great rich being, <laughs> and Ruth was actually represented the Gentiles who eventually would come into the church because they accepted Israel's God. But Ruth pleaded with Boaz to cover her with his skirt. Remember, he did do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was yeah. part of us asking Christ to cover us with his atonement, including the Gentiles. Well, <clears throat> the Lord made this, even, uh, made this even more clear when he, in Nahum chapter 3, verse 5, warns Israel that if they do not repent, of their sins, that he will remove the covering of his skirts, that others may see their nakedness. Okay, so he reinforces that concept there. Um, of course, the most important things are when Christ came, because he fulfilled these witnesses which had been given of his coming, and one of the ways that occurred was through his scourging. You know, um, the Just think about the scourging. They, these uh, whips which they used had uh, metal points on them, and so that the cat of nine tails. What yeah. Call it? yeah. Well, and metal metal barbs yeah. on them, so yes. it actually cut and ripped his skin, you know, from top to bottom. So he, basically, his skin was lacerated. Well, <laughs> I think of that, and I feel like that was one of the ways that the Lord was giving His covering that we might be covered, that our nakedness might be covered. Now, I feel like this went even further because in the crucifixion, it was most likely, now this is a very uh, tender subject. When the Romans crucified, they actually stripped their victims. This is pretty well known, but not talked about very often. Um, James E. Talmadge acknowledged that it was the tendency for the Romans to strip the victims before they crucified them completely bare, to humiliate them, but he said he felt like the Lord somehow was saved from this. Bruce R. McConkie admits that this was the Roman tradition to strip them bare, but he doesn't say anything about it, he just leaves it. Uh, a couple of interesting things, uh, remember the story, most of you, of Carrie Ten Boom. She was this Dutch woman who helped hide Jewish people in her home during the time of the Nazis. The Holocaust. And when finally was caught, it was put into concentration camp, and one of the most awful things they had to do was go through medical exams, she wrote. And she said because they would make them go in, they'd make them totally strip, and then they'd make them walk in front of the guards. They couldn't even use their hands to cover themselves where they would mock them. and. You know, it, the purpose was total humiliation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the thing she dreaded more than anything else in the concentration camp. And as this was happening to her one time, she just got, she was struck by this bolt 
that this is what had happened to the Savior. She felt this very, very strongly. And she said, you know, the artists today paint him with some bit of clothing, but that's the artist's desire for humanity, not the Romans. That's what she came to feel. Then there was a young man, Thomas Cofid, who uh, acted in a movie that the uh, Latter-day Saint Church made about the Christ and uh, the Testaments. And he, you know, as all actors, they have to really get into the part. And he really did work to feel what the Savior felt and be the Savior, as what actors do. And the director, Keith Merrill, noticed in between times he was off by himself after shots crying, weeping. And so he went to him and he asked him, you know, what, what is this causing you? How are you, what are you feeling about the Savior's role and why is it that, that you weep? And he mentioned some of the pain, but he said, but he said also that he felt that he knew, had known total humiliation, that he also had been stripped and mocked. And so those two both felt that the Savior was not saved from that. <clears throat> but what does this mean? This means that the save, if this didn't happen, this means that the Savior actually gave his covering that we might be covered and that our nakedness might be covered. So he allowed himself, if this was true, to be stripped naked so that we might be covered, our nakedness. And there are some final things just to, you know, this is again not known for certain, but there are many things which point to this. And to me it's very profound. In the temple, when we go to the temple, uh, we are given a beautiful covering which in every way testifies of Christ's, Christ's covering. And finally, when we are entered into our inheritance, which we hope to achieve, we pass through a veil, but that word actually comes from vellum, which means skin. So it's actually truly through the skin, the flesh of Christ, that we enter into the presence of God. And not only do we enter in because of that, but when we enter, we dare to stand in the presence of God because we are covered by Christ's atonement, by His covering. That's beautiful. That we might dare stand there before and in the presence of our God. So I just feel like we don't really understand the meaning of this word atonement, meaning to cover. And one other thing is that, again, in an Israelite wedding tradition, that uh, the bridegroom does cover the bride with part of his clothing as his covering, as a witness that Christ will cover us again. So there are many, many witnesses of these truths. Wow, that is beautiful. are very meaningful to me. <laughs> that is very beautiful, yeah. Wow, I mean, the, the, the symbolism there is deep. Well, I think it's so... I think people don't like to talk about it because the thought of the Savior having to endure that is so awful. But if he did, in fact, endure that, I think it would be sad not to know it. <laughs> <laughs> that he did that for us. That he did that for yeah. us and not to know it and to love him for it and to accept that covering with such great humility and uh, yeah. acceptance. Yeah. If you think about it also, I mean, you know, that, 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 that first sacrifice, that first animal that gave its life so that Adam and Eve could have, could be covered. And then later the Lord institutes the law of Moses, which required the sacrifice of 
lambs and you know goats and 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 and, and bullocks and so forth that that you know that, that that blood basically covers their sins if you will and then Christ gives his blood to cover our sins there's so many layers the final judgment yeah <laughs> there's so many layers of meaning and heart touching yeah. <laughs> but i think that's one of the reasons why they talk about blood atonement because it is through his blood that our 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 uh, sins are healed it's through his stripes through his um, agonies that he went through, um, in, well, specifically in the uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, but also on the cross, that these that these were the things that he basically suffered. These were his physical sufferings that he went through, so that he could stand before God the Father with us at his side and say, "This person did these sins." I take these sins on me, and I paid for them, and this is how I paid for them. And um, such a powerful, powerful, um, you know, the symbolism here. So knowing of this, who wouldn't want to glorify him by bringing yeah. forth righteous souls to honor him? And who wouldn't want to let other people know about this glorious plan that God has for us because 99 point something percent of all of God's children on this earth don't even know about his plan. Right. But interestingly enough, in the Book of Mormon, we have the Nephites, and they know about this plan. Several times they talk about that they knew about this plan. And they actually went through the effort of creating massive earthworks to basically instill in the ground, but also to instill in the hearts of their people, and specifically their children, their children's children's children, um, this plan of salvation so that they might know something so big, so some, something so monumental, that even cultures who didn't understand what they were, what they were seeing in front of them um, and, would, and, and may not even know they're going to be so big that they wouldn't be able to destroy them completely. And this goes into um, this, 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 this last thing that we want to talk about here, which is, um, let's just go ahead and talk about they left that they, The Book of Mormon people left their physical witness of their knowledge of the plan of salvation. Yes. And in fact, uh, if you have the annotated Book of Mormon, I want to, I'd like you to, uh, to maybe turn with us here to this is a page, and it's also here on, I've got it up on the screen here. Um, if you want to turn to page 250 of the Annotated Book of Mormon, and uh, amazingly enough, this ancient civilization called the Hopewell Mound Building People that, uh, that were occupying the heartland of the Promised Land of North America, and specifically the United States of America, and, uh, and they had an earthwork that was just beyond compare. It was uh, four square miles in extent, um, includes uh, geometric figures like uh, circles and octagons and, and uh, squares and so forth. But uh, for the longest time, uh, Wayne, May, and I actually uh, would take people back to see these gigantic earthworks. The two of them that are still there is the, what they call the great octagon and the great circle part. And we would take people back there and show them these amazing the ditches and the earthworks and the embankments of earth that are huge ditches 15, 16, 17 feet deep, 
you know, these, the, these embankments that are, you know, 15, 20 feet tall um, and that kind of stuff. And, and, and they're still there as a, as a testimony or a witness of these ancient people and what they accomplished. But it wasn't until, um, well, actually, for us, it was first it was Amberly Nelson, actually, and she, and she also worked with Donna Nielsen. And uh, I know you know you're all kind of friends and so forth. But, uh, but it wasn't until Amberly Nelson was looking at this, and she, she called me up one day, and she said, you know what, Rod? She said, man, I know that there's, there's some really amazing symbolism here. She says, I think I have an idea that this might be a representation of the plan of salvation. I think she's right. In the I largest, agree with her. In the largest, basically, earthwork complex in the world. This, is, this, this brother and sisters, is the largest uh, temple complex in the entire world. Even to this day, it is. It's so monumental. But this is a place called Newark, Ohio. And, uh, and, and, it's, and it's called the Newark Earthworks. And there are some amazing symbolism. We're going to have actually a couple of other people talk about this, uh, this symbolism as well. But I want to give you an opportunity because we, we're going to talk about it a couple different times over these next few um, things. But if you want to learn a little bit more about the earthworks themselves, in uh, this book, it's the Exploring the Book of Mormon in America's Heartland. This is on page 106, 107. and also continues on 108, 109, and 110, 111. And 112 and 113. So that's, that's as far as that one goes. So we've got about six pages in there that talk about the earthworks themselves. But uh, would you like to share with us some of the thoughts that you have about this, uh, this gigantic earthwork? Well, maybe I should kind of explain just a couple of things. We can go over to yes. this. You explain it and I'll just add some things. Okay. <laughs> so if we can go back over to the, uh, to the image here. So essentially what you see here on page 250 now to the Book of Mormon is a... This, this was the original um, survey that was done by Squire and Davis, uh, which ultimately resulted in um, being part of the, the ancient monuments of the Mississippi Valley, which was the first ever publication by the Smithsonian Institution. And in this, they, they show a, a series of things. And let me just very quickly kind of just give you a quick overview. Why do we think that this is showing the plan of salvation? Well, first off, we have uh, some interesting... Um, uh, geometric configuration. So the first thing is, is that uh, you have circles. And a circle is a representation of essentially concepts like eternity, eternal life, forever. Um, it does, doesn't have a beginning or an end. It basically it goes on. Okay? But a square, on the other hand, is a representation of the earth according to the way that um, the Hebrews understand it. Uh, they talk about the four corners of the earth, for example. And that can be either a square or a rectangle, but it has to have four corners, and that is representation of the Earth. Now, an octagon is an interesting uh, geometric figure because it's basically, it is, the, it is the, uh, the, the perfect transition between a circle and a square. It's essentially, if you take a square, and you take a second square, and set it on top of it, and then rotate the second square about 45 degrees, it will create an eight-pointed star. And then if you just take all the, all the tips of the star and just go around it, it, will, it that, that's how you can create an octagon. Because there will be eight, eight sides on the octagon. So when you understand that then, that, then then you also need to understand something else that's really important, is that Hebrew language is not like English, where we read from left to right. They read from right to left. 
So in, in, in English, we have a tendency to look at everything in a clockwise rotation because we're starting off at the upper part and reading to the right, which moves us in that clockward direction. In Hebrew, they actually look at things in a counterclockwise direction because they start from the upper right and read to the left. If you look at this thing in a counterclockwise rotation, beginning from the bottom, you'll see number one down there. That is the circle. That's called the great circle. By the way, that great circle is, is, is so huge that, um, that the, uh, it's, it, it, it's actually about, I can't remember how many, how many uh, acres it is on the inside of it, but it's many, many acres on the inside. That circle is an interesting thing because it has basically, um, the, thing, the thing that makes the circle is it has a ditch and an, and an embankment. But this is what makes it different than any others. And, and this is not a defensive structure like Moroni talks about. This was a ceremonial structure because the ditch, brothers and sisters, is on the inside. And the embankment is on the outside. Who's ever heard of a moat on the inside of a castle? <laughs> that doesn't work. Okay. So, uh, so, why, so why this ditch? Well, anyway, uh, I actually spent about three or four hours when we go on our tours out there and explain more of this, so I, I don't have time to go into too much detail here. But the bottom line is, is that uh, there's that they, they think that that actually was originally filled with water. And it created kind of, like I said, an interior moat. And for a long time, we wondered, what is the sim symbolism of this? If this is basically where everything began, wouldn't it all begin? I mean, the, according to the... Uh, the um, the plan of salvation, we, we, don't, we, we usually start with the pre-existence. And the pre-existence, nobody's going to die. We, we don't die, right? So the pre-existence is one of these eternity kind of things, so that would be represented by a circle. But then it has an opening that goes out and goes into kind of a, a very broad path there. Then that path leads to another path, but the two paths are not actually connected. They're actually juxtaposed from each other which is what you see in number two. Well, I want, I want to point out here that, uh, that this was a conundrum for myself and Wayne. We were, what, what is the symbolism here? It's obviously something important. But all of a sudden then with that, with Amberley's information, anyway, so, so basically with a little bit more of an understanding here as to um, what this all means, um, I was remembering how Nicodemus, when he was with Christ, and, uh, and, and, and basically Nicodemus asked the question, you know, um, you know, how can a man be saved? And basically said, Christ said, you know, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is, was, was like, well, how could a man enter again into the womb? How is that going to happen? And, uh, and, and basically that's, but, but nevertheless, that's, was Christ's answer correct? Well, yes, we have to be born again in, that, in, a, in a little bit different sense. In this particular situation, that represents a fluid-lined womb. The opening, basically, is would be basically the cervix, and this is where you would exit from the womb. Now, there, there, in, inside of the center of this circle, there was actually a structure. It was a long, like a longhouse. It was an elongated structure, and it was divided into three sections. And it had wing walls so that people couldn't see what was going on inside of there. And it was also probably, they think it was probably um, had, had walls that were, you couldn't see through them. 
there was, there was interesting things that went on there. We don't have time to go into the details there. But the bottom line is people could come into this circle. They would do whatever ceremonies they were going to do in there. But when they would turn and, and leave, as they walked out through the opening, symbolically, they would be being born again or reborn. But they're reborn into a path. And that path leads over, and you can see the path is leading directly to the, to the square, which is a representation of the earth. And, uh, and, but but yet there's, there, there's, a, there's not a complete connection. There's something between the pre-mortal existence and the earth. And we know from the plan of salvation, what is that? It's the veil. Ah. <laughs> Just like you were talking about with the veil, Right. So they had a veil, a veil of forgetfulness. We don't remember exactly what was happening in the pre-existence because it's not exactly connected, but we end up in the earth. Then from the earth, there's one, two, three ways out, going counterclockwise. One of them is basically a dead end. One of them comes, has a little, a little holding area and it's a dead end. The other one goes up and we don't know exactly what happened. We think it might have been connected to the upper kind of a path that goes along the top there, but, um, but there, was, there was Raccoon Creek and we think it might have at some point in time, flooded out and kind of destroyed that earthwork there. But basically it goes up in that direction. There's kind of a holding area there right by the, the number six. And then there's a third way to get out, and that's basically the green stripe there um, going from earth, and that comes out. There's a checkpoint right at the beginning of that. You can see kind of a, a circular, uh, uh, there's actually kind of a, a mound there that was there. And then they would go across there. there was, there's also... Uh, this this man-made lake or a pond, which is basically stagnant water, which is, in in in, in fact, in these in these verses that we're talking about here, your, that's your book that's talking about that. <laughs> but basically, Sea of Galilee uh, receives receives water and then it and it gives water, but the Dead Sea receives water and it basically keeps it all for itself, and so it turns into this really salty, briny, nasty water. So what happens when you receive blessings and you keep them all for yourself? you basically turn, you know, rancid, <laughs> okay? But uh, anyway, so, so back to this. So, so the, um, this green area, that both of those paths lead over to the octagon. The straight and narrow way. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and, it goes, and they both lead past this pond of filthy water, basically, this, this, uh, this stagnant lake. This is also the reason, brothers and sisters, why... Christ was not baptized in the beautiful clean waters of the Sea of Galilee. Instead, he was baptized in the River Jordan because it had to be flowing, living water. So, uh, so the River Jordan is a moving body of water. The Sea of Galilee is not. Uh, so then you have the blue area there with the octagon. And then from that octagon, there's only one other way to get out of there, and that is basically the yellow part which is, again, another circle. So this is, again, eternal life, eternity, those kinds of concepts. There's a lot more that we could go into here, but essentially, if you take a look at the upper path, number seven, you will see that there's a checkpoint at the beginning, there's a big checkpoint at the end, but there's also checkpoints all along the path. So once we leave this life, according to what Alma is talking about here, we can go to one of two places, basically, right? Spirit prison or or paradise. But um, there's also maybe a third path, and that is for those who have actually had all of their work done for them, then there's a direct path. 
but everybody else is going to have to go through a vicarious path. Um, they have to have other people are going to have to do this stuff. And so what's going to happen is, is that basically we have um, the, 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 the two paths that go off to the, to the, to the north basically here in this image, are the, is, that's basically paradise and spirit prison. But then there is a direct path for those that just pass the checkpoint and then they go straight over to the octagon. Whereas the one on the, on the upper part of that, they have to go through all these other checkpoints because I think that's the vicarious path. This is the direct path. Both of them lead to the octagon. And what does the octagon represent as well? <laughs> it's the trans It's the Abrahamic covenant. That's right. Okay, so this is the, this is the seal of Melchizedek. Okay, this is on the, on, for example, on the San Diego Temple over 10,000 times. On the front doors of the Salt Lake Temple, there's a square piece of glass with another square piece of glass on top of it. It's rotated just a little bit with a beehive on it. That is the seal of Melchizedek. And what is the seal of Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek was the was the one who's, who the, the original priesthood was named after. And what was the name of the original priesthood? The priesthood after the holy order of the Son of God. And so that became the Melchizedek priesthood. And that is the, that is the, the preparatory priesthood to becoming basically like God is. And so that so basically you have the the, the, the octagonal structure, which is the uh, the the um, seal of Melchizedek, and then it goes into the circle, which we believe to be a representation of the celestial kingdom. So each of these as a kingdom in and of themselves. You have the celestial, then number ten, the yellow the, the yellow one, the terrestrial, number nine. Notice which one is the biggest one. <laughs> okay, it's the terrestrial. Then you have the telestial, which is basically those who have a telestial attitude, basically that, that those here on the earth. Okay? You have um, every single element that is mentioned by the Lord in the one, this one thing that no other religion has. No, no other religion has the plan of salvation. Understands it. And, uh, or understand it. And not only are every element of the plan of salvation in this 2,000 plus year old ancient earthwork in Newark, Ohio, it's also in the right order. So you have, again, from the bottom, basically you have the pre-existence going into the, into the, 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 the earth. You have um, basically spirit prison and paradise. Okay, and then you have a direct route. You have a vicarious route for those who don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel in this life. You have a direct route for those who have had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Ultimately, they will come over here. They will go into the, the seal of Melchizedek. Uh, the judgment will happen. And then those will, each, each person will be uh, assigning themselves or through the help of Christ, they'll understand where they're supposed to be and where they'll belong. And then they will move into each of these different locations. But only in number 10 is where procreation will continue. The other ones will not. So that's just some of the symbolism. Now, I'm going to let Lynette kind of, uh, have at it. Obviously, a lot of work went into constructing these huge, <laughs> and this isn't the only one. There are many other earthworks which, are, which show the plan of salvation. This is the most detailed. This is four square miles in extent, two miles by two this miles. This is the most detailed, and, but there are others, and they all support each other. And obviously, they had to have a purpose, and I really do believe Amberly was correct in giving that idea and I'm glad you've added to it. My only 
I just one addition, and she actually mentioned this, but uh, herself, and that is the one represents a straight and narrow way. And when Squire and Davis surveyed this, you'll notice that there's another small road coming down from the octagon coming down. And uh, she suggested it was the Broadway, and actually, it, it, I really believe that's true. And when Squire and Davis surveyed this, they didn't realize that there was a huge road. It's actually the Great Hopewell Road. It's like 200 feet or yards. It's about 200 yards wide. 200 yards wide. And you know, throughout... 60 miles long. <laughs> 60 miles long. <laughs> anyway, so, um, you know, through the legends of the Native Americans all over, they talk about how they were taught and the Book of Mormon, the straight and the narrow way. The straight and the narrow way and the broad way, which leads away away from celestial life, so it would be leading to destruction. So that's a part of it too. And is, you know, these concepts which they were taught really were meaningful to them and they did reflect that in their structures. They left their witnesses of these teachings that are true. And they made them so huge that even with our earth moving equipment, um, now much of this has been destroyed today, the only portions that are still left is the great octagon, which includes the octagon and the circular portion is still there. It's actually, that little portion by itself is an 18-hole golf course. That's how big it is, okay? Yeah. My um, son and I visited some other of the earthworks which show, again, the, the three degrees of glory. And it, it, in Ohio, and interesting, they told us that they are reconstructing them. Yeah. So, so eventually, people will be able to go and visit these earthworks, yeah. reconstruct it, and see what they actually did create. Yeah. And hopefully by then they'll understand their true meaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, right, right now, if you go back to Ohio with me on the tours, for, for example, um, some of the places like Hopeton, Earthworks, and so forth, they're doing what they call uh, geometric mowing. So they'll actually mow it in particular ways with higher and lower so you can actually see where the, the ancient things used to actually be there. So you can see it for the, because Methodists have been basically flattened out by farming and looting and, and paved over and so forth. So uh, yeah, that's what's been happening. The Nephites left their witness. We just have to find it and acknowledge it. Yeah. And uh, you know, Book of Mormon people were throughout all of the Americas. They all left witnesses and testimonies of their existence and their beliefs. But these are the most powerful. These are magnificent. And by the way, this, this, this earthwork um, would be in the land bountiful. This would be probably their temple. Um, as, as you know, those of you who have gone through the temple, you know that you go through certain stages. You go from one place to the next, to the next, to the next. If you, if you, if, as you follow this, you're going to be able to see that it does basically the same thing. Maybe this was a three or four day long uh, ceremony that was done, this, an endowment uh, back in the Nephite time frame that they would actually go from place to place and have things specifically explained by Christ um, when he was with them as to what this is representative of this, this is representative of that. But brothers and sisters, let me just say this. There is no other religion on the face of this earth that has the understanding of the plan of salvation that we have. And this is the first ever time that we can see direct evidence. That, do, you, do you realize the chances of this just by chance happening that they just happen to have every single element of the plan of salvation that just happens to be in the right sequence with the right symbolism attached to it and into a massive construction that is literally bigger than any other temple complex on the earth even today. This just happened by happenstance, not on your life. 
This is a deliberate effort by a God-fearing people who understood the plan of salvation. And who else besides Joseph Smith and the Lord knew that the ancient people here knew anything about the plan of salvation? Joseph Smith was the only one in his day that knew about it, apparently. And so this is something that I think is such a powerful witness that here we have this gigantic earthwork that still exists today that was surveyed by numerous different people and so forth. And here we have the plan of salvation as only the gospel of Jesus Christ, the restored gospel, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only church that has the understanding of what this means. So this is an explanation that in case some of you might already have the Moroni's America Maps Edition. This is on page um, 86. This is, that, again, an explanation of that plan of salvation here. Um, we also have, this is, you had the, um, the Ancient Monuments book. Did you bring that with you up here? Yeah, but I left it over there because I thought you had this. So. Okay. Well, this, but I'll just show you this one here, though. We can go to uh, that one right there. This is actually from Squire and Davis. This is the Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley. And uh, this is a big, uh, they, they just took the, the actual um, renderings that were done back in uh, 18... 1848 that 1848 they was when they first came out. But right there is the, uh, is the Newark Earthworks again from the, this is, this is a direct reprint from the original book. So, uh, so this is not something that we made up. This is actually something that was, has been there all along for at least 2,000 years. And it's just absolutely fascinating to see how that works. And again, if you want to see that, um, this, this image, just to re re reiterate here, this is on page 250 in the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon. You can go down through and, 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 and look at all the different uh, things here. It's just a uh, phenomenal, phenomenal ep evidence of the Book of Mormon. And uh, did you have any other things that you wanted to share with us? No, I'm just grateful to have been here. <laughs> you are awesome. Let it read, everybody. We're excited about having her. So we want to uh, invite you all to, uh, to continue to... I, I hope you're enjoying these podcasts. If, you, uh, if you're enjoying this, would you give us a thumbs up or a like or, or subscribe or whatever? Uh, also, we want to encourage you to... If, if you're liking these, probably somebody you know would like these. And, uh, and this can be a blessing. You, you don't know what this might actually do to help somebody else who may be struggling with their testimony at this point in time. Maybe they need to see that there is this physical evidence for the Book of Mormon. And they also, in the process of learning about the physical evidence, they're going to learn about the gospel. They're going to learn about the, the, the spiritual and doctrinal evidences that are in this amazing sacred book. It's, it's kind of sad that we only have you know, a few thousands of people who are seeing these podcasts. We'd like to put that into tens of thousands or millions. I mean, that'd be the, the ultimate is to, is to be able to do that. So, uh, so please, uh, if you can uh, think outside the box, think of not only yourself, but think of who else this is going to affect and who you can send, these, uh, send a link to this. That would be awesome. Um, so we have some, some fantastic podcasts coming up here in the, in the next few weeks. So uh, we'll probably, uh, this will probably not be the last time we see Lynette here. Uh, she's got some great stuff that also to, to share with some other, other upcoming podcasts. Thanks, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this. If you uh, have a chance to go to bookofmormonevidence.org, that's uh, where you can get the, basically, it has the umbrella uh, website that you can find links to everything else. Um, and we want to uh, remember, again, to, uh, to, to do this Come Follow Me stuff. This has been phenomenal. If, if you haven't seen 
If this is one of the first times you've actually seen one of the podcasts, you got to go back and you got to see some of the other ones. We've got Tim Ballard and Alex Boyer and Chauncey Riddle and Dean Sessions. I mean, it's, I mean, all kinds of different people in expertise like you've probably never been able to see that before unless you've been coming to our conferences. So uh, we're, we're excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week. If you like this Come Follow Me supplemental study, click the like button and share it with your friends. You can also send your family and friends to bookofmormonevidence.org, which is a hub with all the links that you would like to the podcasts, to upcoming events, the store, at the 400 answers to the Book of Mormon. Also, don't forget, this summer you can have a spiritual boost every day by going to bookofmormonevidencestreaming.com.